Welcome back. If you're just joining, I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired by Interfaith Voices. This week, we've been listening to Judy Silber in the audio documentary series, A Prayer for Salmon. She's an award-winning journalist and over the years has produced several radio segments that dive into questions about spirituality, beliefs, and living religion. But covering Native American and Indigenous people can be challenging and complicated because building trust, well, it's hard. There are countless examples of well-intentioned media stories that were in fact harmful, amplifying stereotypes instead of interrogating them. So I was really curious to better understand what she learned after building those relationships about the Winnemuwintu and about herself. But our conversation starts in an easier place, how she found this story. So it was 2017, and I was sort of looking around for my next thing, my next story, my next project. And I became interested in the idea of uh the connection between water and spirituality. I had been just sort of like looking around and knew that there were some communities in the Mount Shasta area of Northern California um, that were interested in, or that were, who, where this connection between water and spirituality uh, was actually present. And so I started talking to people and they said, oh, you really need to talk to the Winnemumwintu. There were some water wars that were going around going on around Mount Shasta. And so they were like, the Winnemumwintu are very active on this. You need to talk to them. And so I was referred to uh, two members of the tribe who are uh, very closely involved in a lot of the political struggles around water. And we had a very long conversation, <laughs> probably went on for an hour and a half, two hours by phone. And at the end of it, I knew that I was interested. I was like, oh, this is a story. And uh, they said, well, you know, really what you should do is you should come to our Run for Salmon ceremony. It's a two-week ceremony. It starts in September. You should come and check it out. And you can come and you can meet people, including the the leader of the tribe, Chief Kaleen Sisk. And so uh, I went. And for two weeks, I sort of went in and out of the ceremony. I was there for probably a total of four or five days. It travels from Northern California, from the Bay Area, where I live, all the way up to the McLeod River, uh, which is just above Shasta Dam. Uh, and at the end of it, I knew that I was going to do a podcast. <laughs> I, you know, I have to say, like, you should probably be more. Well, no, I, actually, I'm going to skip that part. At the end of it, I knew that I wanted to do a podcast. You know, like, as soon as I got off the phone, I went and I started looking on the internet to see what what else I could find out. And everything that I watched, everything that I've read, I was just more and more and more taken. It was just clear to me that there was a lot to this story. It just really captured my attention. A friend of mine recently asked me, she's like, well, did you feel like it was like a spiritual calling? And what I said to her was, I, I don't know if I think about it like that, but I did feel compelled. There were many moments where I wasn't sure that I could actually finish this thing. You know, we ran out of money at one point. We had to raise more money. Um, I had many sleepless nights, <laughs> but I I knew that I had to finish. And, you know, I, I knew that like 
probably nothing I've ever known in my life. You know, like, I, probably like if I could have, I would have walked away, but I couldn't. Like, I, I had to do this thing. That feeling of calling is an interesting question. And it kind of makes me wonder, do you have a personal connection to any indigenous communities or the native community? So I myself don't have any personal connections other than I grew up in California. This has been my home my whole life. And I always knew that my education was lacking around the early history of California and around the contribution of Native peoples. You know, as a young person, I sort of like blamed it on myself (laughs) that maybe I wasn't paying attention in school. And really through this project, I've realized like, no, it, it wasn't on me. It's really on the state of California, you know, that our education system did not do a great job at educating its children and and its adults about about the history of this state and what that meant in terms of um, taking land and water away from the original people of this state and also what it means for them today and their recovery process as they do their best to recover customs, traditions, language, um, connections uh, to to maintain who they are. Is there a general support for the narrative that Indigenous and Native people were taken advantage of, were displaced, were exploited? Is that like a common perspective or is there a debate about it the way there is around systemic injustice and inequity? There's a Truth and Healing Council that was put together by Governor Gavin Newsom Uh, And that is in process right now. And so they are collecting stories from all over California from Native peoples. And part of that, part of this process that they're going through is to consider whether there should be reparations. So that's still like an open question for California as to what's going to happen. But I would say on an awareness level, awareness is definitely starting to sink in. Judy, you're not Native. You're not a member of the tribe. You're a journalist. You and I both know that Native communities and journalists don't always get along. So here's the question. How did you build trust? How did you get them to believe and entrust you with their stories? I mean, they they get really personal. How did you do that? Well, I mean, I have to say this was one of the things that kept me up at night was wondering if I really could do this. Um, or, you know, like as I got more and more, I think initially I sort of entered into it a little naively. I just was I just liked the story and I liked the people um, and I wanted to tell the story. And then as I got more into it, I realized like, oh, <laughs> like I'm I'm I need to tread carefully here. So the things that I did to build trust you know, I just, I, wherever I could, I, I tried to build trust. For example, we noticed that um, there was a young man, young Winnemum Wintu man. Uh, he had just graduated from high school and he was very interested in photography. And he just had like a little tiny like uh, digital camera. Didn't, I'm not even sure if it had a zoom lens on it. And he was just always taking photos. 
I am not good at photography, but I had a professional photographer, Tom Levy, who was working with me. And so I suggested to Tom that we do an internship with this young man. And so we did. We, you know, we were able to have, we had some grant money. So we were able to use some of that grant money to get him a nice camera, also to give him a stipend for doing the internship. So that was one of the things that we did early on. Later, we set up an advisory committee. You know, most most projects, you don't have journalists who are leaning on other people. They lean on other people as sources, but not as advisors. I knew with this project that I couldn't just be my normal journalism self, that I had to do things a little differently. As a journalist, I feel a huge responsibility. I am carrying that story. I, I didn't want my own blind spots to get in the way. And so, and I, I know that I have, I know that I have blind spots. As I said, my education in California was was lack around California history was very lacking. You just used the word blind spots. What are your blind spots? Well, I mean, you know, it's blind spots in terms of my knowledge of the history, blind spots in terms of my knowledge of how California, you know, California water is incredibly complex. So I had a lot to learn there. Blind spots culturally, you know, I'm Jewish. I'm not Native. Uh, and while I like to think that I'm open, you know, my brain works in a certain way because it grew up in a certain way and it's read certain things and it's talked to certain people. And this was an experience that was outside of the context that I am used to. So, of course, I'm going to have blind spots, of course. And so we felt it was really important to set up an advisory committee and an advisory committee that was made up of uh, both academics, but also Native people who are involved um, in one way or another in the in the community. And so um, one of those people on the advisory committee was Michael Sisk, who is son of Chief Colleen Sisk. And this, I think, in journalism would normally be like a no-no, like you don't use a source as an advisor. <laughs> but we decided very purposefully that it was important for us to do that. The Winnemomentu are a very small community, and so there's not that many of them. Michael was willing to do it. And he was a great source, you know, like he, if not for him, I probably would have made mistakes. And so they were incredibly helpful. I am so grateful to that advisory committee. They supported me through the whole thing. And, and they also were great advisors. Do you feel a lot of worry about getting this story right? I felt it a lot of worry about getting this story right. I mean, I, I still worry about it. I feel like California water issues are so complicated and it's sort of, it's it's up right now. <laughs> you know, like we're, the climate is changing. And so to make informed decisions, we can't just be learning things in the moment. Like we have to actually go back and see what transpired to get us to here. So that's why this documentary was so important to me. And that's why I really did my best to fill in all those historical holes. There's this idea of the river being sacred. For many of us, we think of rivers and waterways as being public goods, um, part of the common good, not as being per se sacred, something that's protected in a way that's different. It's not necessarily that they see like the whole river as being sacred. It's that they see the river as a waterway for salmon. And if you're going to protect salmon, you have to protect the river. If you're going to protect the Winnemumwintu, you have to protect the rock, puberty rock, that is important for their young women to cross over from being 
young, uh, you know, young girls into adults. It's not a way of thinking that we have in Western culture. We might protect the church, but we don't. Um, we don't necessarily protect, you know, something that's that's designated as church just because of where it is and what it means to the people. But that's that's the that's the the bridge that we have to build to understand that they say this is our church, this rock, these places where our people have, you know, uh, uh, ground herbs for hundreds, if not thousands of years. This is our church. We need it respected. And we need to respond in a respectful way. You know, Chief Callian says, described to me one time we went up, um, we went to the McLeod River and we were going up above the McLeod River uh, to visit some of to, to visit some of their sacred sites so that she could explain all of this a little bit to me and, and what was going to be lost if Shasta Dam, in fact, was built higher. And, you know, we were crossing over a little bridge and she's like, oh, there, there was where there were some grapevines. Um, she's like, but then they they moved the bridge, they dug up the grapevine. And she's like, we told them, don't dig up the grapevine, we use these roots. So there's a way that we don't understand is it that we don't understand or, or that we have a legal system? And dominant philosophy hinges on land ownership and designating very clearly what is private, what is public. And when you talk about shifting norms to acknowledge the tradition that sees rocks, roots, the river, salmon species as sacred and then wanting to see the extension of rights extended to protect all those things that are sacred. I mean, those are two very different world views. They're, they're completely different systems of operating. So, we, you know, we live, we live in this colonial society. The norms that are set up are those that were set up by colonial society in for California, it was in the mid to late 1800s, and you know we're 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 living in the 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 afterglow of that. You know, the second thing to remember is that land that is now considered public land, it used to be indigenous land, and it was taken. Not like you sell your house. You're like, okay, I'm going to go into assisted living now. So I'm going to sell my house. This is not what happened. That land was taken and it was forcibly taken. So we have to remember that even though it's considered quote unquote public now, their connection to it has not gone away just because we said, oh, it's now in the property of either private ownership or the federal or state government doesn't mean that their connections are gone. And I think that's this reckoning that that we have to do now and that, you know, that we are starting um, and that hopefully this documentary is contributing to. I don't want to relitigate the past. There were wars and there were winners and losers and winners need to be able to hold on to their winnings. Otherwise, the system breaks down. What do you say to somebody who brings that point of view. Yeah, it, it kind of just makes me mad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Chief Kathleen Sisk actually addresses this in episode seven. Um, she says, 
she said, you know, she's she hears that, you know, people will say, well, there was a war, you lost, get over it. And she's like, what war? It was massacres. It was, um, it was the erasure of of peoples. It was it was killing of whole villages. It was um, setting up a construct of laws so that indigenous people couldn't vote or could be become indentured servants for decades before they had their freedom. I mean, it's it's definitely complicated when you hear the term land back. Does that mean? We all have to go away. I don't think that's what most indigenous people are thinking. You know, on a on a basic level, they want sacred places back. You know, they want the right to be able to go to places that have been sacred all along, you know, ever since, you know, time immemorial. We do have to all learn to get along. <laughs> but like, first, we have to learn to understand each other. I think what's lacking right now is sort of the understanding of the indigenous side. I know for myself that since I started working on the documentary, I'm just more conscious. Like I live in Oakland, California, um, and this was uh, Ohlone land. I'm more conscious when I step outside of my apartment that I'm walking on what used to be indigenous land and still is indigenous land. I'm when I see that there's a creek that no longer is running, instead just has a plaque, a plaque that says, you know, here was a creek. Um, or when there's even a placard that that talks about the early history of Oakland, and it doesn't include the indigenous people who came before. I'm just more aware and sort of like my whole being that there was a people who lived here before. This was their land. They are the ancestors of this land. And I feel like if we, I don't know, maybe I'm a little idealistic, but I feel like if we all sort of embodied that, you know, that would go a long way towards helping us to understand what needs to happen next. When you were working on this series, did you discover any different points of view or diversity of opinion when it comes to the enlargement or the raising of Shasta Dam? Yes. I mean, so first of all, indigenous peoples are not a monolith, <laughs> you know, just like no religious group. And so, you know, for the most part, I I sort of made a conscious decision that I wanted, didn't want to get into the politics, sort of the intertribal politics. I, I felt like that wasn't really my place. So we really just stayed focused on the Winnemum Wintu. But certainly um, there are... In terms of the Shasta Dam and in terms of the proposal by the federal government to raise it higher, there were indigenous groups who opposed the dam raise, you know, who sort of sided with the Winnemawintu or, um, you know, had their own reasons for not for thinking that it should not happen. There were also at least one uh, group um, who who actually wanted the dam race to happen because they happened to have agricultural land. So, and I know that it was very difficult for Chief Colleen Sisk, um, you know, because for her, these are like, not quite relatives, but let's say distant relatives. You know, they're part of the same Wintu nation, which a nation uh, in indigenous terms is less about a government, in this case was more about language and who was communicating with whom. And, you know, for her, it was it was a betrayal. 
I'm listening to you and I'm just thinking about conversations I've had with people who disagree, who are like, well, look, um, tribes didn't all get along. Tribes had intertribal fights and battles and negotiated and violated their own agreements. There, It was violent at times. It was loving at times. It was complicated, just like humans. And being able to determine and say, okay, well, it's the it's one group's land. What's to say we shouldn't zoom back and find out who owned the land before they did? You know, it's almost like this. It's this, um, where does it stop? Mentality. Well, I think in, like, in this case, it stops with the Winnemum Wintu. You know, like... Like, I think to, like, ignore the fact that the Winnemum Wintu still exist today and to ignore the fact that they are a tribe literally at the edge of extinction, like, that's just cruel, you know? Yeah. Like, is that, is that really who we want to be as a, as a society? In my mind, you know, we have natural national heritage sites. In my mind, the Winnemum Wintu, and not just them, but... Other tribes, or I should say the native people of California, should be treated as national heritage people. We should be protecting them. They want the best for our land, for our waters, for our fish, for our birds, for everything that's here. At the very least, we should be including them in the conversation. But beyond that, we should be protecting them. Because... That's what they're trying to do for us. You know, they're trying to protect the land, the water, the fish, so that it's here for all of us. Judy Silber is an award-winning journalist. She leads The Spiritual Edge. The fourth season, A Prayer for Salmon, is available wherever you catch your podcasts. The series is supported by the Templeton Religion Trust, California Humanities, the Calapia Foundation, Save Our Spirits, and the Water Desk, an independent journalism initiative of the University of Colorado Boulder. The team of the Spiritual Edge that worked on A Prayer for Salmon include Loretta Williams and Jeb Sharp as editors, Tark Fauda and Chris Asuga as sound engineers, Tom Levy as photographer, Lindsay Myers Hamley, digital content manager, Adrian Rodriguez and Deborah Kroll served as producers. Katie McClutchen contributed to research and Donia Abdel Hamid served as a fact checker. That's all for this week's show. If you're interested in learning more about this week's episode, head over to the show notes at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can learn more about us. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy. Special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision, MC Yogi for our theme music, and additional sounds by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are well, I hope you are safe, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.